I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but as we read through this, it seems more and more that so much of the New Testament is quoted directly from the Old, and much of what we read here in Psalm 119 uh, is quoted either directly or at least indirectly and referred back to somewhere in the New Testament. Last week we got down to uh, the end of verse 32, so I'll pick it up, Psalm 119 and verse 33 today, and uh, I think we will find that the message here is so uh, germane to the church today and everything that the church has been going through, and all of us have had consternation and frustration and a certain amount of confusion over the last quarter of a century. But there is much answered here that occurred in the life of David and did in the lives of all the people who are listed in Hebrews 11, as well as the New Testament characters themselves. So, nothing is new. Nothing changes. We face the same situations, the same trials, troubles, and tribulations that have been extant since the days of Adam and Eve. That has not changed one whit. It's easy for us to go back and read all those things and perhaps be a bit encouraged by them, and yet they are so far back and so far beyond our comprehension that they don't seem quite as real, for instance, as what you and I might be facing today, because it's you and it's me and it's now. Now, if you really look at the things that are recounted there in Hebrews 11, like people being sawed in half and living in caves on hard floors uh, and so on. One who is down, and I were discussing that a bit yesterday afternoon. I'm laying here on a fairly comfortable spot, and yet a lot of God's people lived in caves and slept on the hard dirt, a rock, with spiders and snakes and whatever else came and crawled in the night. So, we think we have it bad, and indeed, in some respects, we do, because trials, troubles, tribulations of whatever stripe are never fun, and especially when we, at the moment, are facing them. So, it's easy to look at some of the other problems that others have had detachedly, where ours are so very real. But we need to comprehend the past of what people have gone through. And we'll see a lot of David's feelings and those of the other patriarchs revealed here in these pages. He says, Teach me, O Eternal, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Now, he knew the statutes of God, did he not? He had been familiar with them, had read them, had meditated on them as a shepherd boy. And yet, just knowing them, understand, or comprehending that they're there, and being familiar with them, isn't the same as understanding them. We learn understanding by life's experiences. There are a lot of people who have memorized the Bible. I won't say a lot, but there are people who have memorized every word in it can just sit down and tell you because they have what they call a photographic memory. But knowing it and being able to quote it is not the same as understanding it and knowing how it affects the lives of people and our own lives. 
You and I know the law of God, don't we? Yes, we do. But how hard is it to apply it to every situation in our lives? How hard is it to live up to it and to think of the right thing at the right time when we need it? That's the hard part. So, teach it to me so that I might understand what it means, I think is the sense here. And then I'll keep it to the end. We are not converted to the truth just to go to a place of safety so that we might enter the kingdom of God. In other words, we're not here just to save our hides, are we? We are here to be converted to the way of God, to the laws of God, to His statutes and judgments, to what ultimately is the best way of life, not just trying to sort of keep ourselves under control so that we make it through the final tests. We need to be converted to the way of God, a way of life, not just hanging on hoping to save ourselves. And that is something that I think I have seen a lot of through the decades in the Church of God, is that people want to escape what is coming, so they will say, well, I'll be good this long, and I think I can be good that long, and I hope the end comes soon, because I'm not sure I can be good any longer than that. So in many cases, we have not approached it as a matter of converting our minds that are against God's law, that are enmity to it, to living that way because it's the best way to live. And then it doesn't matter how long it goes on because we're converted to the way and we're not fighting against it and just trying to hold on and hope we make it before we give in to our human nature. Living that way is a difficult thing to do. The law of God is a perfect law converting the soul. So it is the best way to live no matter how long this thing might extend. If we had that approach in past decades, and then the church would fall apart... What would happen to a lot of people who had that mindset? They would accept paganism the minute it was taught in the church, or they would give up altogether and go back into the world and back into Protestantism, or they would do nothing or give up religion entirely. So what I'm saying here is not what if or hypothetical at all, It is the history of the last quarter century that so many people were not converted to God's way and they so easily then gave it up. They had fallen among thorns or on bad ground or in the rocks or whatever and did not stay. Now, maybe I'm talking to the wrong people because you're still here. But there is always that danger because there are still people who are giving up. And giving in. And toward departing from God's way. So what are our true feelings, our true convictions, 
what are our true... Uh, well, I can't think of the one word I was looking for. We'll pass on because at my age it may never come. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. If we understand what that law can do for us, if we understand how truly we will be happier if we keep it rather than break it, then we're going to be much more inclined to keep it, are we not? If we just do it because God said do it, therefore I guess I must, then it's a matter of submitting our will without our heart. But if you understand why God has the laws the way he does, then you're more prone to keep it than break it. So it's that understanding of the law that's important. That's why you have to meditate on the ways of God. Remember David said, I meditate on all your ways in the nighttime. When he would wake up at night, his mind would turn on God's law because he was trying to understand why it's a better way to live than some other way. We're in a world today that is experimenting with all kinds of lifestyles. Some of those are making the headlines today, and it's beyond experimentation in many cases. It's become a lifestyle. Many various and perverted forms. They're searching for happiness, for whatever they might find that they think is good for them. But they lack an understanding of God's way and why it produces peace and happiness as opposed to the chaos and frustration and wars and arguments and fights that are going on between individuals and nations. We are blessed, brethren, to understand, to know the law of God and the peace that it can bring. Why don't we have perfect peace here? Because we don't keep God's way perfectly. If we did, we would have perfect peace. It's cause and effect. But the more understanding we have, and you know, sometimes understanding comes with hard experience, with trials and tests and troubles, because we get ourselves in trouble in various ways, and then we have to work our way out of it, whereas if we'd simply kept God's law, we wouldn't be in the enigmatic situation we find ourselves in, would we? Give me understanding, I'll keep it. Yes, I will observe it with my whole heart. It is only with deep understanding that we embrace God's way with our whole heart. And we have read in the Psalms and in other places in the Bible how God is seeking wholeheartedness. Whatever your hand finds to do, including keeping His ways, do it with your might. And that is where we failed in Worldwide Church of God. And that's where we tend still to fail. And God says we will find Him truly when we seek Him with our whole heart. That's not what we were doing. We embraced it more wholeheartedly in the 50s and 60s. And then the cares of the world began to encroach and we went through the motions. Kept the... Sabbath, went to the feasts, but God was not the center of our lives. 
And being God, the God of the universe, He is at the center of the universe. And the only thing out of step with that is Satan and his demons and the human beings on this earth. The coyotes, the beetles, are in step with his way, through instinct. But we have minds that take us away from what is right and what is good. And we follow that course all too often. That is why God had to spew us out of his mouth. That is why we are confused and frustrated and splitting and splintering to this day. So what David is saying here is very true for you and me right here today. We're not reading Psalms for encouragement or inspiration. We're reading them to help convert our souls more fully to the way of God. I'm not saying we're not converted, but what is conversion? It is a process. And none of us are more than partially converted. We are not wholly converted at all. Now, let's not start putting percentages on each other because that's not wise. But I know that none of us are 100% converted to God's way. That's why we struggle. So we have to understand it and keep it well enough that it encompasses our whole heart. Make me to go in the path of your commandments, for then therein do I delight. Now, we do delight in God's way, don't we? We feel blessed, and it is a special thing that God has called the weak and the base out of this world and given us opportunity. So, we do look upon it as special, and we do delight in them. But he says, make me to go in those paths. You know why he said, make me to go there? Because even though I delight in my mind, in your way, my feet don't want to go there. They want to go somewhere else. They want to do something different. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the problem that we face. David faced it too. Or whoever wrote which Psalms. He wrote most of them. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Now, by nature as human beings, we are deceitful and desperately wicked. And the human mind is enmity to God. So, this is a prayer. Please incline my heart, my mind, my feelings, my thoughts to go your way. And not to covetousness. Because as human beings, there are all manners and forms of things that we might desire that are illegal. So, we have to ask God to turn our heart from that and incline it to His way. Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. What is vanity? Those things which are transitory, which don't last. In other words, they're a vain pursuit because there's nothing there that is eternal. There's nothing that will last beyond a certain point. And then it goes away. We need to seek something eternal, something that will always be, has to be first in our affections, in our desires, and in our actions. 
What good is it? We're only going to live 70, 80, 90 years. And then it's over. All the time of our vanity. And you know, we're facing that more and more in the church today. God did say He would build the latter temple and there would be old men, a few, who would be able to compare the former with the latter. And as this stretches out, worldwide is receding further and further into the rearview mirror, and we are getting older and older and more debilitated, more physically and mentally wrecks, and we're facing mortality. Now, is there something in this life we need to pursue that is more important than considering eternity? And yet it's so easy to get pulled down by the things around us, the people around us, our own desires, or whatever, that are transitory, temporary. Quicken you, me, in your way. Quicken, electrify, uh, sensitize me to your way. So that I'm quick to go that way. Instead of so slow. How fast do you overcome? When you recognize a problem within your mind, do you overcome it immediately? I doubt it. Human beings turn to the good very slowly, generally. Now, there may be some hair-raising things that occur in your life once in a while that... (laughs) get your attention and you say, oh yeah, I think I better straighten up. But generally we change pretty slowly. You know, I began to learn the ways of God at age eight, about seven or eight. And I recognized things even then. And if I didn't, my parents told me that I needed to change. You know, I still fight some of the same things today. I change rather quickly, don't I? I think we all share that same experience. It is not easy. That's why these things are being written. The psalmist was fighting it. Quicken me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to your fear. And he had a certain wisdom because he had fear of God and that's where wisdom begins. But even with a certain fear we have of God and of judgment and so on, We still find it difficult, don't we? None of us want to go to the lake of fire. I hope not many do. I think many are going to be, will repent during tribulation. I hope we don't have to go there in order to go through that. I hope we can do it ahead of time. But that's the prayer here. We need the Word of God established. So that the fear that we have of God might have some effect. Turn away my reproach, which I fear. Now, we don't fear an ever-burning hell in the same way that Protestants and Catholics and perhaps others do. But we still understand that we could fail if we're not careful. That's why he says, don't let any man take your crown. Work for it. Establish it. 
Don't give it to someone else. There are only 144,000 crowns that go to the bride. That's all in the first resurrection. There are many, many more crowns that can be given out in the millennium and great white throne judgment. But he will have a bride of 144,000. It is limited to that. It says these are the first fruits, very clearly. There are no more and no less than 144,000 first fruits. Revelation 7, 14, I think it is. That's all. So there are that many crowns. And if you give yours up, someone else will take it. Because God will have that number as the bride of Christ. That's it. Now you have been offered one. Don't let any man take it. Turn away my reproach, which I fear. We need to fear to lose it. We need to fear to lose the gift that God has offered us. For your judgments are good. Why do we fear? Because we still disobey. The righteous are bold as a lion. It is our sins that makes us afraid. Our conscience that makes us afraid. His judgments are good. God is merciful, as we heard in the sermonette. We all need a lot of mercy. And fortunately, it does endure forever. But how much can we push it, not before... God turns away from us because he said he will never leave nor forsake us, but before we turn from him. Was it that God gave up on Worldwide Church of God in the splinter sense? Or did we depart from God and he had to spew us out? And now he is awaiting repentance and wholeheartedness and obedience from those that were scattered. That was the reason he did it. Not that he forsook us, it's that we were not paying attention to him and had forsaken him in many ways. And he wants to restore true spirituality to his church. That's his goal, and that's his purpose, and that's why we're in this severe trial in the church. What an embarrassment that the church of the living God would be scattered. And yet it had to be done. Job was a righteous man in God's eyes. He even told Satan, he's a righteous man. But Job still had a problem. Now, God did not reject Job, but boy, did he put him through the ringer, or let Satan put him through the ringer, didn't he? Now, God has not rejected the church either, but he's letting Satan put us through the ringer to fulfill his purposes. God would not let Satan do to the church what has been done unless it was God's will for it to happen. Satan left Job alone until God said, Have you considered my servant Job? I think he needs some trials, troubles, 
and difficulties. And Satan said, let me on him. God said, fine, go ahead. That's what happened to us. It's not just that Satan did it himself. God doesn't work that way. It's his church. He said it will not die out. But he didn't say it wouldn't be spewed out for a time. Behold, I have longed after your precepts, verse 40. Quicken me in your righteousness. That's the goal, is righteousness. Job was righteous, and yet, to some degree, he had a self-righteousness about him. He looked upon himself as being okay and pretty good. And the vast chasm between him and God (coughs) had to be shown. And once he understood that, then he was as close to perfection as a human being can get on this earth. Christ was the only one perfect, but Job learned a very powerful lesson there. Verse 41, Let your mercies come also to me, O Eternal, even your salvation according to your word. So we have a longing for God, and yet our nature pulls us away. We're lazy, we're weak, we're uh, rebellious, we're stiff-necked, we're this, we're that. All kinds of human emotions and difficulties beset us. So, in recognition of that, then, he says, let your mercies come on me. And what can we pray today in the church of God other than for mercy? Because it was us who were half-hearted and lackadaisical. And we need to turn to God with our whole heart. But we need a lot of His mercy and forgiveness to be restored to the closeness that we had with Him. Come also to me, O Eternal, even your salvation according to your word. So he says, I I seek for salvation. I want it. I want to be close to you. But I need a lot of mercy and forgiveness in order to have that closeness that I need to have. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Now, the church is basically being ignored by the world today. It got a little recognition when Herbert Armstrong was going to the kings and presidents and so on. And now that it's scattered, it's pretty well forgotten. But that is only going to last so long. And once this new world odor takes hold a little stronger, they're going to persecute God's people above all because Satan hates God's people. The Protestants, the Catholics, the Islamics, and so on, are already in his hand. He has no problem there. It's only those who would obey God and keep his Sabbath, his holy days, his way of life, that they hate. And that will become very obvious very soon, and we will not be forgotten anymore. We're going to be front and center Because the whole world will worship the beast and the false prophet, except a very few of God's people. And even the very elect, whoever they might be, would be deceived if it were possible. That means that it's almost possible for that to happen. You and I sit here and say, well, I understand God's law. How could that happen? 
It will be so real, so righteous looking, that it could turn the heads of even God's own people if that were possible. It's hard for me to imagine, but it's true because God said so. That's how real it's going to be. We'd better be ready so that we can discern the difference and hopefully be among the very elect. There are those who call their church the church of the very elect today, a spinoff of Worldwide, and other similar names. And I think it probably has been done for the purpose of trying to convince all the other splinter groups that we're the best one. Therefore, we'll take the most righteous name we can get, or the most spiritually sounding name that we can get, and maybe convince others we're the right ones. That is a very dangerous attitude to take, and it comes so very close to saying, I have everything I need, I have need of nothing. The lukewarmness that God has kicked out in the first place. That is why I took the name A Congregation of God. I want us to be recognized as part of God's church, but I don't want to be named after the undivided or the very alive and living and not dead church of God or however you want to phrase it, the very elect or whatever. We're just some of God's people trying to be the kind of people we need to be. And we need His mercy because we will be reproached. We better be ready to stand on God's Word. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in your judgments. We've hoped that the judgment will be good on us, and judgment is now upon us. But how many people have had the truth of God utterly taken out of their mouth in these last 25, 6 years? Thousands upon thousands no longer even recognize God's Word. They've given it up entirely. So this isn't just rhetoric. This is real. This is today. I hope you and I don't lose it and have it taken out of our mouths. I saw people in Alaska in one day Quit keeping the Sabbath from sundown to sundown. Because somebody in Pasadena says, well, let's keep it from six to six. What does the Bible say? Yeah, but that's headquarters. That's the government. We go by government, not by the Word of God. All but three families that I know of went six to six based on one sermon. And that was only the beginning. Then, clean it in unclean or okay. My daughter worked at McDonald's. That very night, people came through ordering their bacon whatevers. Church people. Just like that. 
And they lost the truth and went utterly out of their mouth. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. Something we're converted to. A way of life. Not just hang on for a while and hope the end comes. And I will walk at liberty or at large, for I seek your precepts. Now there's an understanding in that. We are freed from evil conscience. We're freed from feelings of negativity about ourselves as we obey God. When we break His law, then we have all kinds of things that we have to fight. Fear, discouragement, depression. The truth will set us free. Now we, the world looks upon the laws of God and His truth as a chain around our necks. But His commandments aren't grievous. They aren't bad. They're good for us. They just don't seem that way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Whatever seems like fun at the moment might lead to bigger problems later on. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Remember when the church sent out the ministry and we were representatives of Ambassador College, not of the Church of God because of shame and fear and not being willing to truly stand up for God because we were small and we're expecting persecution and tribulation. Now it's turning around. And a small group of people in the end time are going to stand against the world. This is predicted right here. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings. Now Herbert Armstrong was still somewhat ashamed. He went to the kings. He went to the presidents. But he talked not much about God. He talked mostly of a way of give and a way of get. Now, I understand that his job was not to go to the world and preach the gospel as a witness and then the end would come. He died and the end hasn't come. He was not the Elijah to come. He was a man that God raised up to call a lot of people. So his message was generally a friendly message, a mild message, a give and get. He did not stand up against the kings of the world and tell them where the bear went through the buckwheat. But it will yet be done. He called many, and now a few are being chosen. That's what God said would happen, and it has. I don't mean to denigrate him at all or to put him down. He fulfilled his purpose. He called many. And then many fell away, as the Bible also says would happen. And only a few remain. And God is choosing among them to finish out the bride of Christ. And we will be called before kings, and we will not be ashamed, 
and we will shout it from the rooftops. And we will go against the whole world and the new world order and Satan's new millennium. It will be done. I say we. I don't mean you or me necessarily. I mean the church. Whatever part is faithful, whatever part is a part of the latter temple, will be the ones that do it. Those who are trying to do it today are not having much success at it. And they're not doing it like this verse implies either. It's still a soft soap message for the most part. I will delight myself in your commandments, which I have loved. Positive statement. Difficult to come there, but we're all working toward being able to say verse 47 before God and mean it. With deep sincerity, not just lip service. I think David learned a lot of things by the sins and the sufferings that he went through. And Psalm 51 shows that he turned more with his whole heart to God than he had been previously. Maybe he was wholehearted in his youth. And God saw that. And then he strayed somewhat. But then he came bouncing back. That's what we all have to do. My hands also will I lift up to your commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in your statutes. Kind of the same, isn't it? My hands will I lift to your commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in your statutes. That's the same thing as loving God, because God is love. He is defined by His commandments. This is the love of God that you keep His commandments. So, if we are to know God and understand God, we do that through keeping His commandments. That's how we come to know Him, because He is His commandments. It's the way He thinks. It's the way He lives. And He wrote it down for us so that we might could read it and say, well, that's the best way to live. Verse 49, Remember the word unto your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. Isn't it the Word of God that gives us hope? Faith, hope, and love are the three important things. But hope may not be the most important of the three, but it is certainly a very important thing for us to have. If you feel hopeless, you don't feel energized. You don't feel like doing anything. Because the opposite of hope is negativity and depression and discouragement. And when you're that way, you just don't feel like doing anything positive. It is hope that gives us energy, that makes us want to move forward. I hope to be in the kingdom of God. With that hope deeply embedded in us, which comes from God's Spirit, then we are more likely to do what we need to do. And it is through His Word and living it that we come to have hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your Word has quickened me. <coughs> we will have afflictions, won't we? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We can't get by without afflictions. They come. They're part of life. They're what ordained 
or God ordained us to have was afflictions. He started that with Adam and Eve. Wasn't it affliction to have weeds and briars and brambles instead of a Garden of Eden? And to have to work by the sweat of his brow to make a living? And Satan was around and their human nature had come out in great volume. And life was full of discouragement and frustration and difficulty. And there was a tremendous breach between them and God after they were kicked out of the garden. And there was a tremendous breach between them as husband and wife because they each blamed the other for the trouble they got into instead of taking responsibility for themselves. But we have hope in Christ's forgiveness and His blood for forgiveness and mercy. And it is only through His sacrifice that we can have hope. Because every one of us, let's face it, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We do, daily. In some form or another, through omission or commission, we all fail. Thankfully, we have mercy. And that gives us hope, because we can pray and ask for forgiveness, and it gives us some hope and desire for the next day. And if we blow it again, we can come and ask for that continual sacrifice yet again. Isn't it nice to have that? So that you can leave your sin behind. It isn't attached. It's forgiven and removed. Now if we could just get each other to forgive our sins the way God does, then life would be better too. But human beings want to remember or can't forget or for whatever reason hang on to whatever infractions they think may have been committed. We can't move past it. And you know who that frustrates the most? The one that won't give it up. Not the one they have the feelings about. They may not even know some of the fester that you feel. But you're the one with the infection if you don't give up their infractions, slights, social things, sins, whatever they might be. If you hold them and harbor them, they will rot you spiritually because they're negativity and they pull you down and they discourage you and frustrate you. What did you expect? Perfection? Yeah, we came into the church of God originally and expected everybody to be there, there to be perfect. And I guess we thought we'd get that way in a week. And then we had our bubble busted when we found out that there were people all over the church who had problems. And we had to get over it. And it's happened all over again. You come into a new group, think, well, this must be the right one. You like what you hear, so you join up. About the same time, others are going out the back door because they already had their bubble busted. So in the church today, we have people rotating chairs through different groups. They think, ah, I found this one. I've got a guy that calls me up fairly regularly, or used to. I've told him off, off enough that he's begun to get where he doesn't anymore. But he has a new hero about every 
oh, I don't know, four, five, six months. Found a new preacher. Boy, this one has all the answers. He won't read his Bible, but he finds himself a new preacher every few months. He gets all excited. And then his bubble gets busted. I know that's not good grammar, but it's modern slang. We can only anticipate that anyone in God's church will have problems and will have weaknesses and will even commit sin and have all kinds of trouble. Now, what do we do about it? Do we start comparing ourselves among ourselves? Do we start comparing ministers with other ministers? Do we start off in another direction? Or do we recognize that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we don't compare ourselves to others, or them to us, or to someone else? We all compare ourselves to the Father in heaven and His Son, and we recognize that all of us are the bottom of the barrel. So what good does it do to have two worms under the barrel stand up and start making accusations at each other? They're both going to be fish bait unless something happens. So why do we judge one another? Why do we harbor feelings? Why don't we forgive as God forgives and remove it as far as the east is from the west and be done with it and start each day new? He tells us in Lamentations, every one of us gets a new, fresh start every sunup, every morning. Ah, that we could be like God and give each other that chance. See why the statutes and the way and the mercy of God is important? See how understanding it makes a difference? As opposed to just saying, well, God's mercy, God's love. I know the Ten Commandments are in effect, but if we understand what mercy can do as opposed to harboring attitudes, then we would make progress. Then we would grow. But when we're so busy picking at one another like a bunch of chickens, then our growth is impeded. It stopped. It doesn't happen. Because we have so much feeling of negativity and hurt and how I've been wronged or whatever that it bogs us down and stops us. But you know what? It doesn't come easy. Mercy does not come easy. Now to God it's first nature. To us it's not even second nature. To us it's hard to come by. We are so easily angered. We are so easily beset by sin. Hope in God is the comfort in our affliction. Verse 51, The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from your law. There are many even in the church who says, oh, look at those people, they're sticking to that old law, 
And don't they have enlightenment? And don't they know that grace only is all we need? So we've been put down by those who stayed with worldwide and by the rest of the world because there aren't many commandment keepers left. There just aren't. Nobody really but the church of God believed in keeping the commandments in the first place. And now, 80-90% of them have departed from that. That doesn't leave very many. We cannot decline from God's law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Eternal, and have comforted myself. We go back and see the judgments God has made and how He has shown mercy upon thousands who've kept His commandments. I've always found that interesting in the Ten Commandments where He says, I will have mercy on thousands who keep my commandments. He knew way ahead of time that there would not be millions or billions who would keep His commandments. But those who do, He shows mercy on. And He put it that way, upon thousands. Why did Jude say that Christ will return with tens of thousands of His saints? He didn't say millions. Tens of thousands. Well, 144,000, a more specific number in another scripture, is tens of thousands. It's not even hundreds of thousands, is it? One plus. So it's still in the tens of thousands. Let's see. Uh, Verse 53, Horror has taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake your law. We're horrified, aren't we? Those that have departed from the law of God and the rest of the world doesn't give it any mind at all. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. You want to know what music we need to sing and listen to the most? Your statutes have been my songs. What do we sing out of the hymn book? These psalms. A few other places from scriptures were taken by Dwight Armstrong. But mostly, we sang one from Psalm 119, the last one this morning. I don't know that you chose it that way, but that's the way it worked out. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. What are we called? Ambassadors, pilgrims on this earth. And this pilgrimage we make as human beings as ambassadors and pilgrims for the kingdom of God, needs to be substantiated and expressed in singing hymns to God. Those have been our songs. Are those your favorite songs, or do you have some other genre that you like better, that you'd rather listen to? And we'll just just do that on Sabbath. That's one reason I like to sing every day at the feast and at Passover, Because it gets those hymnals going through my mind over a period of days, and they tend to stay there. And I'll I'll think about them and sing them in my mind. If we only do it once a week, they tend not to be there as readily as they are otherwise. Just a little hint here from God about what our real songs need to be. I have remembered your name, O Eternal, in the night, and have kept your law. 
meditates about the things of God in the night, and that helps him keep the law. This I had because I kept your precepts. In other words, if we sing the hymns of God and we think about his laws in the night, then that will help us keep his precepts, his ways. You are my portion, O Eternal. I have said that I would keep your words. Now, people want their portion to be money. They want their portion to be a happy marriage. They want their portion to be a dozen kids. They want their portion to be the SUV of their choice or whatever people choose. David had learned that God was what he was after. That was the only real answer to our deepest longings. I think, where is that? Philippians, if that's put. God is the answer to our deepest longings. I think that's from the Phillips translation. But that really is the ultimate answer. We have other desires, other wants, but really when you get down to it, only God can answer the deepest needs in our hearts and minds. I entreated your favor, or your face, my margin says, with my whole heart. Now doesn't he tell us in Isaiah and Jeremiah and other places that he's turned his face from us because of our Laodiceanism? And here, David, before those prophecies were even written, is saying the same thing. But he's seeking God's face. And he did it wholeheartedly. That was one thing about David. God said he was a man after God's own heart. He was wholehearted. Now, when he sinned, he was wholehearted. <laughs> Whatever he found to do, he did with his might. But when he learned to quit sinning and serve God, he did that with his might. God would rather be, we can't talk, we be either hot or cold, not lukewarm. He does not like lukewarm at all. Cold, he can dismiss or perhaps work with. Hot, he loves. Lukewarm, <laughs> He doesn't like that. He doesn't like apathy or the modern expression we have, whatever. You ever use that one? Whatever. I have no opinion. Whatever. That's only one way we do it. And we all do. It's kind of a modern phraseology of the same emotion. Now, there are some things I really don't care. I mean, and it's not a spiritual issue. I don't have a burning desire to eat this as opposed to that, necessarily. Whatever you want to fix, I will eat. But doesn't the one cooking want to know, because she might herself be confused about what she wants to fix, and if you had a really strong feeling, tonight I really would like tapioca pudding. No. Or whatever it is you like. Then she would prepare it more cheerfully, wouldn't she? It might not matter a whole lot to me whether it's chicken or beef on a given night. But whoever's fixing it would rather, a lot of times you say, and that's the reason they put the question to you. 
What would you like? Or would you like this or that? Whatever. That's really inspiring. I think I'll go fix some whatever. Would you like a glass of lukewarm water? That's whatever. That's your dinner. It doesn't matter what part of life it is. We need to be wholehearted as we go about it. Because if we do it in little things, we will do it in big things. Isn't that what God says? If you're faithful in the little, you'll be faithful in much. So we should have, or learn to have, wholeheartedness. Maybe I need to work on that one. Next time my wife says, would you like this or that? Or what would you like, instead of saying, oh, you make the decision. I'm too lazy to decide what I might like for dinner. That's what it comes down to. It's apathy. I'm too lazy to decide. You decide. Well, maybe I should make up my mind. Somebody asked me, what would you like to eat? Maybe I should actually work that out in my mind, think about it, and decide on something I would really like, and then say so. Whereupon she would say, that's too complicated, I don't have enough time. <laughs> no, i just kidding. But isn't it better? You've all had it. We're going to go out to eat some night. Husband says, where do you want to eat? Mm-hmm. Kids, where do you want to eat? Mm-hmm. You decide. Either they scream for the worst possible fast food that is on the market... I suppose. I don't know. Maybe we're getting astray here a little bit on some of these things, but doesn't it really boil down to having the right passion for life and not being lukewarm about anything? Whatever your hand finds to do, whether we're talking about dinner or whether we're talking about Prayer or woodcutting. Whatever you do, go after it. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, my grandmother and my aunts and my mother used to tell me. And I'm still working on it. I entreated your face with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. He says he'll be merciful, so he's claiming the promise here. <coughs> I thought on my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. We meditate, we think about the direction our life is going and the attitudes we're in, and then we change our minds. We go a different direction. We straighten it out, whatever it might be. We work through it. We go God's way. I made haste and delayed not to keep your commandments. Now, some things we can overcome fairly easily, fairly readily, because they aren't that big a deal to us. But there are some things we just as soon prefer putting off overcoming for a while, because they're our favorite sins, whatever they might be. No, we need to make haste. God said, flee from sin. Flee fornication. Get quickly out of Egypt. Don't delay. Go. Go now. Make haste. 
The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten your law. The bands are the companies of people around us. They'll suck spirituality right out of us, won't they? This world around us, its ways, its entertainment, its distraction from God, will suck our time and life, because our life essentially is our time. And if we waste our time, even with something that strictly is legal, if it wastes our time, it's still taking our life. Our life that needs to be devoted to God in His ways. We have all kinds of things today that fit within verse 61. All kinds of time wasters. We have so many, many. I won't even try to get into them all. But I've not forgotten your law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgment. Remember the ten virgins? A cry was made at midnight. And they rose. And some were ready. And some had no oil. The book of Psalms is a book of prophecy. Christ may have even derived that analogy from this very verse when he taught it. At midnight I will rise and give thanks to you. Now if you have oil in your lamp, you can give thanks to God for that. If you don't have oil in your lamp, you're going to scramble, but it will be too late. So make haste. I am a companion of all them that fear you and of them that keep your precepts. Did not Paul say that we're to have no fellowship with the world? Did he say that our friendship was not to be with the world? And what partake, uh, how can you partake of the world, of the good and of the evil? Didn't the Apostle John say that our fellowship was with the Father and with each other? Didn't Malachi tell us that when he makes up his jewels, he will consider those who speak often one to another about the things of God? I am a companion of all them that fear you and that keep your precepts. That tells us who we need to be friends with. Tells us who to be around. It's those that fear God and keep His commandments. That's where our friendships need to be because that will help us toward the kingdom of God. Iron sharpens iron. And if you go to something that is blunt and doesn't have any spirituality, how does that help you along the path toward the kingdom of God? Everything else is vain and takes our time and does us no good. The earth, O eternal, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. It is a merciful God who made things the way they are on this earth. The beauty that surrounds us. He could have wiped it all out with the rebellion of Satan, couldn't he? Satan was the ruler of this world. And he rebelled against God and became the ugly, tormented individual that he is today. And God could have destroyed the earth so that it would not even exist. And could have done so in total righteousness, 
because of the rebellion of the one who inhabited the earth. But out of mercy, he chose to save it. And out of mercy, he chose to create human beings and gave them a beautiful world and a recreation that we live in today. And he said, I'm going to take a chance on these created beings, but I'm not going to create them perfect. I'm not going to give them my nature, and I'm not going to give them eternal life right, off, right away. I'm going to make them subject to death. I'm going to make them subject to the very nature of Satan. Rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked, murmuring, complaining, whining, crying, accusing, nasty, nasty, deceitful, desperately wicked human minds. That's how I'm going to make them. Now, he didn't initially. He gave Adam and Eve a beautiful place and a beautiful attitude. But it didn't last long. It only took a little bit of Satan's influence and they turned into liars, cheats, thieves, dishonest, idolatrous, carnal, wretched human beings. Not overnight, but that day. Probably Sunday after the creation. I think Herbert Armstrong was right about that one. I don't think it went on for hundreds or thousands of years before Satan took advantage of them. He's not that way, and they weren't that way. And we aren't either. So he had mercy. He said, I'm not going to give them eternal life until they show me that they will choose my way above Satan's way. There's the perplexity that we live with every day. Satan's way is a way of accusation and anger and hurt and frustration and misery and lying and cheating and stealing and idolatry and covetousness and lust and everything else that we fight every day. That's Satan's way. And it is a struggle, isn't it? And you know what? If we don't have a great deal of adversity, we tend to just sail along. We tend to forget God. Even with what we understand, brethren, about what's happened in the church and why, and what the Scriptures say about it, We'll just coast and float along, won't we? And they can come up here and speak every week. And we'll hear it and say, yeah, I agree. And then we just go out and do our thing. Doesn't rock our boat. Doesn't change our lives. Doesn't have impact. We can forget it by the time we get our bib and plate and get into the potluck line. Maybe we don't think about it again the rest of the week. We just drift along. We don't really change. We hear this and that about diet, about exercise, about how we treat one another, about you name it. But we don't want to change it. You know what causes people to change? Preaching doesn't. Very little. Adversity. Trouble. Sickness. 
debility, injury, hurt, is what it takes to cause us to turn to God. Now, that's why he spewed the church out. Is that in the hurt and the confusion and the frustration, we might begin to seek him with our whole heart. And even now, we have, you, I, have committed ourselves to whatever level of seeking God in a way that we didn't before. And yet we still will tend to put it in neutral and float along, won't we? What changes that? We're getting more and more old, decrepit, sick, ill, hurting people. God says He's going to make the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Can't do that unless you got lame, blind, and deaf. Or getting them. And it hurts. And then some people will accuse each other and say it's because you're sinning that this is happening. Well, maybe so. It's because we're all sinning that these things happen. It's because we were sinning by omitting to do the things we needed to do that God blew us out of His mouth in the first place. And He expected us to repent. And maybe we did to one degree or another. But we still don't have God wholeheartedly at the forefront of our minds and therefore we are suffering more and more trouble. And I'll guarantee you it is going to get worse until we change. We have anticipated a long, long time in the church of God, since I can remember, that since Israel went through the first plagues in Egypt, we would probably do the same thing. And at some point, God would make a difference. Instead of accepting that and doing what each individually we need to do, we begin to blame each other and point at each other and say, it's your fault or it's the preacher's fault. Yeah, some of it's probably my fault because I still have problems and weaknesses. But pointing the finger does no good because it doesn't change you. The only thing that does any good is if you change. The only thing that does any good is if I change. We point the finger at each other and it does no good whatsoever. It fills us with animosity and it discourages the other. Doesn't do a bit of good, does it? Change. Repent. Overcome. That's what does good. God is going to turn His face back to us. He promises on His very life when we turn to Him with our whole hearts. Now, we're at a time when we have adversities and afflictions and they seem to be increasing. My visit the sick list is getting longer and longer, it appears. What are we going to do about it? God is not going to lift this until we turn with our whole heart to Him. He's not. It'll just get worse. Many are the afflictions even of the righteous. 
So if we are at a period where we're beginning to take it for granted, we're not listening anymore, like Wolf Wolf or This is the Gun Lap or whatever, or Daryl's been preaching this way for years and years now, and it begins to be dull of hearing, and oh well, so what? Let's go listen to somebody else. Maybe you'll get something more from somebody else. That's fine. But it's all going to come to home to roost. That's where it's coming to. We must turn to God if we expect Him to turn to us. Those are His words, not mine. If we get weary of well-doing, or we start pursuing other things other than righteousness, it'll just get worse. And he's told us in how many places that you and I have read in here that he will turn to us when we turn to him. It's up to us. Enough said for today.